You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thanks for tuning into Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And a number of you have been emailing me over the last few months about what it takes to become a full-time investor, the thought process, considering the risks and the reward, what is it like uh, a day in the life as a full-time investor. And so as I was getting those emails, I was considering that myself, and I reached out to Brian Lenny of juniorstockreview.com, Alan Reiser, who is a full-time trader currently living in uh, Puerto Rico, and also Michael Queller that Alan put me in contact with, another full-time trader since 2018. And I just brought these gentlemen on the show. We're going to have a little bit of a roundtable discussion to talk about their process of becoming a full-time investor. So gentlemen, welcome to the show. And Michael, I'd like to start with you. Uh, give us a little bit about your background. Uh, you've been a trader since 2004. Share with listeners what that was like leading into your decision to go full-time on your own. Well, in 2004, I was unemployed and I had a friend who was trading in a New York office and I was living in Florida and he said, my firm has a, my office in Miami and you'd be lo- great at this because you're great with numbers, you love to gamble and that's what trading is. So I said, well, I'm unemployed. I have nothing else going on. Let's give it a shot. I went into interview and I saw the other guys there just in, you know, polo shirts, driving nice cars, making money on a computer. And I right away knew, I said, this is what I want to do. This is for me. And I also could tell, I was like, there's no reason that if these guys can make money that I can't make money. You know, they're not MIT scientists or anything. They're just regular guys. And so I sat down you know, and started trading right away. And that trading desk, it had some risk to it, right? You weren't, you wouldn't get paid unless you were successful, but there was also some downside risk for you in that position, wasn't there? Correct. Basically, you only got paid if you made money. Otherwise, you were living on a pittance of $300 a week, which was a draw that they always kept track of, and you had to make enough money to cover that. And so you, you, you were not there to make $300. You were there to make money, and that's when you got paid. And if you lost money, what would that look like? You, you, a half million dollar loss on a trade, what would that look like for you? that you wouldn't get paid again until you made back a half million dollars and won. So it was it basically, it was always known that if you lost that kind of money, you were out of a job because you would just, you'd quit or get fired. And your protege is on the call too, Alan Reiser. Uh, tell us how you came into this trading. You worked with Michael there, didn't you? Yeah, I started out in the same shop and uh, Michael Queller was, uh, he was my trainer there. So he was like the, uh, he was the, the first face I saw there, the guy on day one, you know. Uh, I think what you'd been there already five years when I started. Yes. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I started in the same exact situation. I was a young guy out of college, and you know, uh, I met you know I, I met these guys at this office, and I, it was the same thing. I I, I had this a very similar experience. You know, uh, see a bunch of guys wearing polo shirts, driving nice cars, and I'm thinking, hey, these guys aren't rocket scientists either. I think I can do this. You know, and uh, it was really appealing. You know, the idea of you know you keep what you earn. But like you said, there's downside to it too. You know, there was some, you know, especially in the beginning, you know, there's a lot of time you're really not making any money and that's okay when you're young, when you're 22, you know, no family or anything like that. But you know, you're, I was eating ramen noodles a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ryan, what about you? What led you up to the process of becoming a full-time investor? Uh, I think it was the confluence of a number of things. Um, I had reached a good position in uh, the, the steel manufacturing industry and uh, came to the realization that I really didn't like what I was doing on a day-to-day basis. And it 
it kind of it met with me doing really well in the market in 2016. And even though I had a young family, um, I wanted out of the nine to five life that I was living. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, I've done well in the market, um, somewhat of a proof that maybe I can do this. And I took a leap of faith and I, I left. Um, looking back on it now, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I, I, you know, there's a lot of luck involved in that. And, um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so, so Michael, what, what thought process to walk us through your thought process of launching out on your own, because what you described to me, it was almost like you were self-employed in some ways, because if you lost, you could lose big. If you won, you could win big, although you would share half your profits with your employer. So what was the thought process like leading into your decision to go full-time self-employed in 2018? So I was never really concerned my ability to make money because I had at that point been trading successfully for 14 years and had, I think, maybe one negative month in the last 10 years from, you know, one trade that went bad. So I wasn't concerned with the ability to make money, so to say. And I had enough money saved up that I knew I, you know, would be able to support myself. My only real concern at the time was that I was going to be changing platforms because the firm I use had proprietary software. So I was leaving basically all the software I knew to, to go with the unknown. And so I was just really nervous, like, would the software be sufficient so that I could continue making the level of income I'm used to? Because if, if, if not, you know, switching to make a hundred percent of what you make wouldn't benefit me at all if I was making less. So that was really the only concern. But, you know, they did give me the software to look at and, you know, I was able to spend some time with it and I felt pretty confident that I could uh, make a comparable income. And I'm happy to say that I was able to. And so now I'm just not sharing anything. And, you know, from the risk standpoint, now that I do take, you know, a hundred percent of the risk of my own money and, you know, at any moment can lose, you know, $500,000 of my own money, you know, I just, I treat, it with a little bit of respect. You know, if I'm in a position that it's, you know, looks a little dicey, I won't necessarily add to it. I may, you know, cut the position, even if I think it's a bad sale, I may still take the sale. Because one thing traders, a good trader will tell you, we're risk managers before anything else. It's the most important thing because there's always another trade. You can always make more money, but if you blow your into all your money on one trade, the game's over. So it's just about managing your risk so that there's another day to trade. That's that's the number one thing. And I've always been good at that. And so I knew I'd be able to continue that. So I was pretty confident that once I believed the software was good enough that I had no doubt that I was making the right decision. When you say software, is this like an algorithm or would it be no, described no, as no. an algorithm or? No, no. I would li like the platform. Like, for example, people that use TD Ameritrade uh, are probably familiar with their platform called Thinkorswim. So it just uh, the trading software like that that allows you to enter orders because uh, whilst people trade different ways, a lot of what I trade is based on, you know, being very fast and uh, executions and, you know, f uh, situations that are moving very rapidly. And so you need software that can, you know, support that where you can see news in real time, charts in real time, you know, the level two quotes in real time, everything being being, you know, very fast to keep up with it. You know, I, most people that are, you know, don't see level two quotes, don't realize just how fast the market is moving when you're trading something like Amazon with news. Yeah, that's a great point. And your family situation, what was it like at the time? You're very confident as you just shared, but uh, were you the sole breadwinner also when you made the choice? 
Yes, I was the sole breadwinner and I have two children. So, you know, life is not inexpensive. Uh, but I, I had, you know, a long track record of making money. So I felt comfortable. And I also, I have an ample savings at this point from 14 years of working so that I knew that, you know, if I have a month where I don't make money, you know, I can still put food on the table. Um, the other thing, you know, people need to understand is that if you feel comfortable having a job where you make exactly $500 a day, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what this is. The people that are drawn into investing, is because they're hungry and they want the possibility to make 5,000 or 10,000 in a day. And they're also okay with the idea that they can lose 5,000 or 10,000 in a day. So, and that's me, you know, I'm a born gambler. <laughs> so Alan, uh, do you have the same psychological makeup as Michael and how, how did you become a full-time investor? Well, um, I think I too am a born gambler. I don't think I'm as much of a gambler as him necessarily. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what he said is absolutely valid. Like you have to be willing to take the, uh, the good with the bad. And I mean, that goes, whether you're a long-term investing kind of guy or a short-term trader or a mix of both, you know, like I am, um, you, you know, with experience, you get very comfortable with, you know, big red numbers and big green numbers sometimes, you know, and that's, that's just part of the game. Um, but as far as, you know, my start, I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of like I said, it was it was sort of first job out of college and I was hungry and, you know, I wasn't sure it was going to work out, you know, the way it did. But uh, I'm here 15 years later. So and what year did you go full time you know, on your own to where you got to pay, provide for yourself without the firm you worked for? Right. So I was with the firm for about 10 years. So that was around 2018 that I went full time. So you guys own. left at the same time. Who left first? Um I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was the bold one. I was the bold All one. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, going out on your own, it's different. You know, you don't have that support and it's the same thing. Like I knew that, you know, one really, you know, one really bad trade where that risk management goes off the rails and I don't know, you're going to be applying for a job at Wendy's or something next week. And so Alan, did um, you have that pressure? Were you, are you the only breadwinner? Like what's the family situation? What was your responsibility there? Yeah, I am. I'm the sole breadwinner. Uh, no kids yet. Um, so I, you know, that that does make it a little bit easier, I guess. I mean, I'm not saying I would recommend, you know, not following through just because you have a family or something like that. But um, it's definitely important to consider, though, like your your monthly expenses and what you need to come up with, um, not just for you know practical reasons, but psychological ones. Like sometimes when you're, you know, trading and maybe things aren't going well. And, you know, you've got those bills stacking up and it, if it affects your judgment, you know, it's a problem. So uh, I think whatever your family situation is or your lifestyle situation, it's always important to make sure that, you know, you kind of keep that in check and have a buffer because you really don't want, you know, outside forces affecting your decision making um, in the middle of things. FPX Nickel is developing the large-scale Dakar Nickel District in central British Columbia. Within the district is FPX Nickel's PEA stage Baptiste Nickel Deposit, which is projected to be among the world's top 10 largest nickel mines by annual output. The Baptiste Deposit has the potential for the lowest quartile operating costs at just $2.74 per pound. And compared to recent global nickel mines, the project requires a low capex. FPX is also commencing its first ever drill program at its van target in the Dakar Nickel District. 
surface samples have indicated that the van target footprint is larger in scale and 10 to 15% higher in grade than Baptiste. FPX Nickel trades in Canada as FPX and on the OTC under FPOCF. To learn more, go to fpxnickel.com. That's fpxnickel.com. Brian, what about support network? You know, do you think support network is important when you're making that decision? You know, it's just you and the computer, your bank account, and your kids and your wife that are relying on you to make that all work. Like, what do you think about support network? Uh, it's integral to be making a decision like that. Uh, your wife and I guess your kids to a certain extent have to be, uh, you know, with you when you make a decision of that magnitude. And uh, they also need to understand that it could fail. Um, outside your family. Um, and it's, it's something I was thinking about when you brought up this topic for our discussion. Um, I look at where I am now compared to where I was then. And uh, I know without my support network, and this is mentors that I've kind of acquired along the way the last five years, I don't know where I would be without their help, <laughs> to be quite honest. I think, you know, when I, when I talked about, you know, when I did well in the market in 2016, I took that as proof as I could do this. Uh, but then I look at what I knew then and what I know now, I would say that I probably mistook a bull market for brains, um, as Rick Rule puts it. And that's sort of tough. So yeah, I think, you know, for a lot of people that may be considering something like this, um, I think looking at where you are in the market and then understanding where your success may have come from um, would be a good realization of whether you can do this because you need to be able to do it no matter where the market is. And I look over the span of how long I've been doing this. I've been in a bear market or a uncertain market more years than I've been in a bull cycle. And uh, a bear is completely different than a bull from what I have ex experienced. And um, you need to be able to, and you know, as Alan and Michael have said, you need to be able to, to run with wherever the market's kind of going and not let it interrupt your psychology. And uh, that's probably easier said than done. Michael, what's the thing you uh, regret most or dislike most about what you do now versus working for the firm, if anything? I mean, there's really nothing I dislike. The biggest thing is I heard the firm buys everyone free lunch every day. Now that sounds pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you do? Okay, you're looking at a screen all day. Brian's not a trader. Uh, I'm not a trader. Uh, Alan, you're a hybrid. You're an investor slash trader, right? Both. That, both. Yeah, yeah. Michael, you're a trader. I'm bridging the gap here. Do you ever find that you just got to get away from the screen, go fishing, go hang out with the kids at the park all day or whatever, you know, just the stress of being a trader, especially if you've had multiple bad days in a row. Yes. I think a work-life balance is very important in any job, but especially in our job, because there's so, it's so much anxiety and, and frustration in every trade because you've never bought the bottom. You've never sold the top. So you've always left money on the table. I like to tell people I have two kinds of days, days where I lost money or days where I didn't make as much as I feel I should have. So <laughs> every day is a bad day in that regard. There's never a day where you walk away and you're like, wow, I, tra I traded perfectly. It's just, it hasn't happened. I've been doing this for, you know, 17 years now. Um, so it's important to have a work-life balance, but uh, I actually find it easy to break away from the market because on 99% of days in the middle of the day, the market does kind of get stagnant. So it's very easy to leave, you know, at the bare minimum, take an hour, go to lunch. You know, I like to go out to lunch a lot. So it's easy to take an hour. Anytime my kids have anything, whether it's a meet the teacher day or, you know, they have some special thing that I'm supposed to be there. I never miss any of it. I go to all of them. 
You know, there's hardly ever an instance where, you know, I feel like I can't get away from the market. And then, you know, occasionally there's something crazy happens there's a flash crash and I sit there and work all day. But it's so few and far between that it's very easy to get away and enjoy yourself. If, if you want to play golf with me tomorrow, I'll play golf. You know, all the day trader YouTube videos that are recruiting day traders where it's got the guy with the Lamborghini, the laptop beside the pool. Is that what your life looks like or what is your life? <laughs> No, I mean, when I, when I work, I'm laser focused. I'm in my office, you know, with the door shut and I'm just, I'm just trading. You know, if I was, if I was at the pool distracted, I would not be effective as the way I am. Um, and, but I'm at the same time, like when I take off, I, I also take off a hundred percent. Like if my wife says next week, she wants to go to the Bahamas. I go to the Bahamas. I don't bring any of my trading stuff. I completely disconnect from the market and I'm on full vacation. Brian, as you're listening to a trader describe his day, what does your day look like as a full-time mining stock investor? Uh, you know, some of those things are are kind of common. You know, when uh, when a golf game or there's something that comes up with the kids, um, I take the day uh, and enjoy it. Um, other than that, I'm pretty engrossed in it, um, and that's probably another thing. If if you think that you're going to leave your job, and this is in terms of this is my perspective, if you think you're going to leave your nine to five and work less by going out on your own, you're, I think you're lying to yourself because I work more than I've ever worked in my life. Um, I wake up in the morning. Uh, I'm usually the first up and I have my, my coffee and I go through the news and, uh, then I go up to my office and I start my day. And, uh, usually my day is done when the market closes. Uh, and then I, had cooked dinner with the kids. And then I go back to work right after dinner, um, bedtime every other night with the kids. So that's kind of my day. And I work until maybe nine 30. And then my wife and I usually watch like a show or something. So, um, it's a, it's, it's a long day, but I have to say like, I would, I, I, I think it's great. And, um, uh, that it, it fits uh, our lifestyle and, and what I wanted out of, you know, leaving my nine to five job. And I can and, verify that you cook dinner. Cause I've called you and you yeah. said, Bill, <laughs> Bill, I'm cooking dinner right now. <laughs> hey, you know what? It's funny. I started in university doing that. Um, I find cooking is one of those things that I'm not particularly good at, but I can forget everything else that's going on and just focus on cutting <laughs> vegetables or such. So for me, it's a nice, uh, no matter what happened during the day, I can kind of de-stress and listen to the radio. And that's, that's kind of how I do it. And Alan, you don't have kids. So what does a day in the life look like for you? Um, I mean, it's, it's probably similar with or without the kids, at least for me. I mean, I'm, I'm first up in the morning, like Brian, I'm, I'm usually up at around six, six thirty. Um, I take a little time off in the middle of the day too, you know, at least lunch or some fresh air, get out, you know, some sun. But, uh, then I'm, I'm usually working till about 8 PM, uh, pretty, you know, from, from the afternoon on, you know, pretty focused and, um, yeah, then dinner with the wife and, you know, same thing, watch a show or something like that. And then, you know, you got to get your sleep because tomorrow's another day, you know, every day is a new battle. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think for anybody who's full-time in this industry, whether you're a trader, investor, whatever it, to, you know, it does take over a good chunk of your day. It's not like sitting by the pool with your Lamborghini or whatever you're seeing on Instagram. You know, those guys are all probably just scammers. <laughs> for being yeah. honest. I've know? heard a lot of them actually just rent the Lamborghinis for the video too. So <laughs> <laughs> at least they didn't steal it, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so Michael, uh, what do you do to quell any anxiety you might have? Do you close out every trade every day or do you swing trade? How do you use margin? Things like that. 
Uh, before I answer, I just want to elaborate on something Brian said about the timing of the day. Uh, when you have a job like this, it's always on your mind because your, your value of your, your net worth is always changing. So if I have a big position that's bothering me on my mind, and even though like the, even after hours trading ends at 8 PM, I will still sit at my desk and go on all the social media sites to read about what's going on. See if I can find anything. I will read about the company, anything I can find to put my mind at ease. And then I will, it'll still be on my mind all night that I'll be up so early. Some sometimes as early as 4am, you know, just to log in as soon as it starts trading, just to see if there's anything going on. So that's the kind of environment you're getting into as a full-time trader. Um, now to answer your next question, I have a really good way that I handle the stress. I always ask myself after, you know, a losing trade or I'm in the middle of one and I say, is this going to change your life? And the answer is always no. Even if I lose an amount of money that to some people would just be like devastating, let's say $50,000, reality is as much as it stings, it's not going to change my life. And I can just move on with that and say, this is just a bump in the road. And my kids are healthy. My wife is healthy. I can still have money and savings to pay the mortgage. And that's what's important. So my life's not changing. So I can move on from this. And But the big key there is that it's very important if you're going to be a full-time investor to have ample savings. Because if your whole savings was $50,000 and then you just lost $50,000, you won't be able to feel that way anymore because you no longer have any nest eggs. So, so if you're serious about being a full-time investor, you better have an ample amount of savings at, to take on the risk that you're talking about. And if you told me, well, I only have $20,000 to my name and I really want to be a full-time investor, my short answer would be, you don't have enough to do this job. But if you were like determined and you're going to do it anyway, I would say then you can't risk more than $1,000 on any one trade because you can't, then that's 5% of your net worth. Fine. So be it. But you can't be risking $10,000 on a trade when you're worth 20000 so do you and your wife come to agreement on what number you have to keep in savings that you can't touch for trading purposes? No, it's really just up to me. And, you know, it's at my discretion, but I have an ample savings that I just, I never really worry about it. But in my head, when I'm trading, I really don't like to take more than $10,000 of risk on a trade. And what that means for me is that once I'm down 10,000 in the trade, even if I think it's a terrible place to sell and I know I'm going to regret it and, you know, I'm going to slap myself in the morning, I will still either sell it all or sell most of it so that I prevent turning a $10,000 loser into a $20,000 or $30,000 loser. But the catch in the markets for anyone that traded is that there's so many unforeseen circumstances where numerous times I've made a trade where I think I'm only risking $500 and I'm dead wrong and I lose $30,000. And that's the unfortunate thing. And then, you know, being a risk manager comes into play even more. And you need to say, I'm way over my downside. I've lost 30,000. And it's even more important to just say, I'm getting out because I can't let a $30,000 loser turn into a 60 or a $90,000 loser. It's all about just being able to play the game the next day. Ryan, risk management. When I hear that, I think of you. What are, what are your thoughts there? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, I'm always trying to protect my downside risk. And for me, you know, being a value investor, that's, that's paramount. Um, and the, yeah, every trade that I make outside of expiration companies is based on evaluation of the company and how much um, downside risk I have, you know, for instance, you know, if they have an economic study on the, on the company, it's how much I discount that buy, um, and compare it to what the company's trading at. And therefore to me, there's a degree of safety, um, when you take that, that position, um, in saying that though, and, you know, actually I, I just, 
had a loss yesterday <laughs> and uh, it's something that I had, I thought I had my downside risk protected and a couple of the risks that I knew that were in the investment coincided and I lost a little bit more money than I thought. Um, and that happens, but I can tell you from the process that I've, I've developed over the last few years, um, I lose much less than I, than I, I had in the past and I'm many more winners. And I think ultimately that's what you need to do is, you know, buy things that are worth more um, than they're trading at and um, have an action plan to uh, move things forward and have that, that valuation recognized by the market. And uh, that's absolutely the way that you are, in my view, successful over the long haul. Alan, since you're in Puerto Rico, you don't have to deal with taxes. So do you ever find yourself with not having to deal with that burden as an American citizen in Puerto Rico? This is all legal for those that know, know you can do this. Uh, do you find yourself maybe being a little looser because you can say, hey, I can lose a little here because I'm not going to be paying 37% tax anyway this year? I wouldn't say it makes me looser because, um, you know, you can adjust your trade size based on what you expect the, you know, the tax consequences to be. Uh, what I do think, though, is it does make me more flexible. Um, like I might have a position that I'm in and, you know, I mean, anybody who's who's, who, you know, who invests like has been in the situation where, you know, you've been holding this this stock for 10, 11 months and you see a great sale opportunity. You want to get out, even if you think, you know, it's only short term, I'll sell it, I'll get back in. But then you're looking at your tax consequences. You're going to be like, man, if I hold this thing for a few more weeks, I'm going to pay significantly less taxes. And so you might miss out on that opportunity to sell it and buy it back or something like that. Um, so I think it offers me more flexibility, but as far as like, does it change how loose or tight I am? Um, not really. Um, it does, however, mean that when the, when the numbers get big on both, you know, if, if a big loss, you, you feel the sting a little more like, you, you know, there's always that joke, well, oh, I can write this off my taxes, you know, whatever. And uh, then I come to the realization I can't, you know, um, but, you know, it's a double edged sword, I guess. Let's go around the horn for final yeah, thoughts. Right. Okay. <laughs> final thoughts, Alan, for investors listening to us, what would you like to share for those considering becoming a full-time investor? Um, you know, I'm, you know, in an odd way, I'm sort of in that position because I've been trading for a long time, but I've, as I've really only been investing for a few years and, you know, that's where I found your channel and, you know, went down the, uh, this rabbit hole. And, um, I mean, everyone here has given really good advice, but, uh, I think something I would say that hasn't come up is I think it's really important when you're getting started in this, um, to seek out professional guidance, you know, like I, I get great information from your channel and, um, guys like Brian and newsletter writers. Um, I, I, I'm a client of John Fenix who I found from your site and, I, I don't think I could do this without that kind of information, like having somebody who has decades of experience and for a relatively small price, you know, essentially can guide you uh, in a way that you might not be able to do on your own. And that's that's really priceless. So I think I think really professional help uh, really has a lot of value Excellent. in this game. And you get you get, you know, you, you put in a little and you get a lot out of that. Brian, final thoughts. Um, I think a couple things. Uh, first thing is, I think the 10,000 hour rule is, is very true. Um, I think until you spend about 10,000 hours into something, um, 
you're you're definitely not uh, maybe a professional or have the knowledge base to I think really succeed. Um, secondly, I think that people should know themselves and make sure that if you are thinking you want to be a trader or an investor full-time to be sure that that's exactly what you do want. And it isn't, you just want to change from the job that you're currently in. Um, I think there's a certain personality type that fits the investor or trader and uh, it definitely isn't everybody. Um, so be true to yourself and make sure you understand and are looking for the right thing. Michael, final thoughts? Have some reasonable expectations because either you're going to lose right away for quite a sustained period, or if you happen to start winning right away and you'll think you really know what's going on, you're setting yourself up for a huge loss because you think you know what's going on. Um, also, trade like a computer with no emotion and understand that it's a lifelong learning game. I've been doing this for 17 years and I still learn new strategies all the time. Um, and also, you know, markets are always changing. So you have to really be under, uh, able to adapt to new things because people that can trade well in, say, a bull market like we have now sometimes really struggle in a bear market. And sometimes bear markets and bull markets can go on for years. And so you need to be able to trade in any market and make money. So have some reasonable expectations and just accept that you can always learn more. And that's life. Excellent. Well, you've heard from three men who have done it. They've become full-time investors. They support their families via this means. So for those of you that emailed, hopefully that this was educational and inspirational, and we wish you the best in your investment journey. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Thank thanks you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors, and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.